Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. (laughs) This is a knife. What are you looking at? Rolling in a boy jumping rear. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you, far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. Swear to Christ, Lucy, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Wook Wook. Welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, we're covering... Classic, a really historical film, black and white film, a silent film. It's Raymond Longford's The Sentimental Bloke. It's a fantastic, beautiful film, really, really wonderful, based on C.J. Lewis's poems. On this episode, I'm joined by David Blakesley from Criterion Cast and Eclipse Viewer as well, who I'm eternally grateful that he was able to sit down and discuss this film with me. Because this is a silent film, usually where I would put in some clips of the film or maybe uh, a trailer or two, um, it's a little bit hard to do that. So instead, I've employed the help of uh, Leanne Drew, who has been kind enough to read out some of C.J. Lewis's poems from The Sentimental Bloke, which will hopefully fill in a bit of the, the history and the colloquial aspects of the actual poetry itself. So let's listen to one of those and I'll be back with a little bit of a discussion about the film in a moment. A poem by C.J. Dennis from The Sentimental Bloke. A spring song. The world has got me snooted just a treat. Cool fortunes, dirty lefters smoke me soul and all them joys of life I held so sweet is up the pole. For as the poet says, me art has got the pip. We've yearning for, I don't know what. I'm cook, my name is mud. I've done me dash. Me flaming spirit's gone, the flaming ump. I'm longing to let loose on something rash. Oh, I'm a chump. I know it, but this blimey old springtime craze fair outs me on these dilly, silly days. The young green leaves is shooting on the trees. The air is like a long, cool swig of beer. The bonza smell of flowers is on the breeze. And here's me, here, just mooching round like some poor balmy coot of hope and joy and fortune destitute. I've lost me former joy in getting chic or Evan Browns. I haven't got the art. To word of Tom and square and all, I'm sick of that cheap tart. Who chucks her carcass at a fella's head and mauls him? Ah, oh, I wish that I was dead. There's little breezes stirring in the leaves, 
And sparrows chirping I the old day long And on the air a sad sweet music breathes A bonza song A mournful sort of tune that gets a bloke Fair in the brisket ear and makes him choke What is the matter with me? I don't know I got a sort of yearning ear inside A dead crook sort of thing that won't let go Or be denied A feeling I want to do a break And stouch creation for some woman's sake The little birds is chirping in the nest The parks and gardens is a bonza sight Where smiling tarts walk up and down All dressed in clobber white And as their snowy forms go stepping by It seems I'm seeking something on the sly Something or someone But seems to me I'm kinda looking for a tart I knew A hundred years ago Or maybe more What's this I've heard them call that thing? Gee whiz Me ideal bit of skirt, that's what it is Me ideal tart And blimey look at me Just take a squiz at this and tell me can Some square and honest Tom take this to be her own true man? Oh God, I'd be as true to her, I would. As straight and steady as, ah, what's it good? Me that has done me stretch for Stoush and Johns and spends me leisure getting on the ship and half me nights down there in Little Lun with Ginger Mick. Just adding them and doing in me guilt. Tough luck. I suppose it's how a man is built. It's old God builds a bloke, but don't it hurt? When he gets yearnings for this higher life On these spring mornings watching some sweet skirt Some future wife goes sailing by And turning on his fizz The glassy eye for being what he is I've watched him walking in the gardens here Cleaners from the offices and shops and such The sort of skirts I doesn't come too near Or dare to touch and when I see the kind of looks they cast, gauze, tooth, what is the use of me, I asked. What was I slung here for? And what's the good of yearning after any ideal tart? Ah, for bloke was only understood. He's got a art. He's got a soul inside. I'm poor or rich. But what's the use when Evans crawled his pitch? I tells myself someday I'll take a pull and look around for some good steady job and cut the push for good and all. I'm full of that crook mob. And in some spring the future holds in store, I'll cop me prize and long in vain no more. The little winds is stirring in the trees, where little birds is chanting lovers' lays, the music of the soft and balmy breeze. Oh, spare me days. If this here dilly feeling doesn't stop, I'll lose me block and stouch some flaming cop. The music backing that particular reading there was from Jen Anderson, who composed the score for the 2004 re-release and restoration of The Sentimental Bloke, which was a fantastic uh, screening that occurred around Australia. And the particular session that I went to was at Somerville Auditorium in Perth. Uh, in the outdoor theatre, and it was really quite a, a, a stunning feeling and emotion that I got from watching that film for the very first time. Sentimental Bloke, directed by Raymond Longford, was a career high for him. 
It spawned a sequel called Ginger Mick, and in 1932 there was a remake of uh, The Sentimental Bloke by F.W. Thring. Wasn't as successful as the original, or even as the sequel Ginger Mick, but it just goes to show the uh, the endearing nature of, of C.J. Lewis's work here. The follow-up film for Roman Longford was On Our Selection, which is based on Steel Rudd's stories. This was released in 1920 and was equally well-received as a sentimental bloke. Unfortunately, due to low return for films in Australia, it was hard for Longford to make a substantial career for himself here. And after On Our Selection, it was a gradual reduction in his output. Within The Sentimental Bloke, he worked with partner Lottie Lyle, who was originally named Charlotte Cox. Um, one could say that she is essentially Australia's first superstar. Unfortunately, she passed away at the young age of 35 due to tuberculosis. Lottie Lyle worked closely with Longford by writing, editing and performing in his films. As you'll see, well, if you watch The Sentimental Bloke, which is available on YouTube, um, you'll see her great performance in that particular film. And she essentially was, uh, as mentioned, the first sort of superstar for Australian cinema and, and a true pioneer for Australian cinema as well because she was one of the great female collaborators in Australian cinema. She wrote, she edited, she performed in the film. She also co-directed a film uh, called The Blue Mountains Mystery, which was co-directed with Raymond Longford. And unfortunately, uh, like many of the films in the early 1900s, it's lost to time. And it's it's heartbreaking in a way that there are so many Australian films that have been lost in this era due to the fact that you know they were the the film then wasn't uh, essentially well restored or well saved or anything like that and a very very fragile medium. So films like the Blue Mountains Mystery, uh, films like the the stories of the Kelly Gang these are all lost to time and it's it's heartbreaking to see that especially given the history of australian cinema and the fact that um you know for want of a a better term we are the creators of the first feature length film meaning the first feature film that was over 60 minutes long which you know it would have been fantastic if that had been uh, around it would be a brilliant thing there are certainly segments of that film that are available to watch which you can see uh, in low grade quality on YouTube um, but unfortunately the, the complete thing isn't there so in that regard it's it's great that a film like The Sentimental Bloke does exist in its pretty much in its full form today uh, it's a beautiful film to watch it's it's really entertaining and really informative as well and audiences in the early 1900s well this was made uh, and released in 1919 so just after the first world war they found that you know it resonated with them it was moderately successful it had a international box office of 50,000 pounds and you know if, if records are correct the film cost 900 pounds to make so a uh, good return on investment especially given the fact that you know, it's uh, in that period, it was a lot easier for films that were made in America or the UK to get an audience internationally because they would have made a lot more money in the US uh, because, of course, there was a lot more, more people living in the US. So, uh, you know, a lot more audiences were able to go and see these films, whereas, unfortunately, it's harder for Australian cinema and, you know, it still stands true today that it's hard for Australian cinema to maintain uh, an audience, an international audience, um, 
and they have to try and certainly get that uh, domestic audience in Australia before they can even obtain the international audience. But let's not get too far off track because, you know, we're talking about the sentimental bloke here and it's a fantastic film. So in that regard, again, usually at this point I would play a segment of the film, uh, a little bit hard given it's a silent film. So let's listen to another one of C.J. Lewis's poems by Leanne Drew. And then I'll be back with the discussion with David Blakesley. Doreen. I wished you meant it, Bill. Oh, well, me art went out to her that evening on the beach. I knew she weren't no ordinary tart, my little peach. I tell, yeah, square and all, me art stood still to hear her say, I wish you meant it, Bill. To hear her voice, its gentle sort of tone, like soft dream music of some Dago band, and me all out and holding in me own her little hand. And now she blushed, oh, strike it was divine, the way she raised her shining eyes to mine. Her eyes, soft in the moon, such booster eyes. And when they sight a bloke, oh, spare me days. He goes all loose inside, such glamour lies in her sweet gaze. It makes I'm all ashamed of what he's been to look into the eyes of my Doreen. The wet sands glistened and the gleaming moon shone yellow on the sea all streaking down. A band was playing some soft, dreamy tune and up the town we heard the distant tramcars whir and clash and there I told her how I'd done me dash. I wish you meant it. Struth, and I did, I, fair. A bloke you'd be a dog to kid a skirt like her. And me, well, knowing she was square, it'd be dirt. It'd be no man to point with her and kid. I meant it honest, and she knew I did. She knew. I've done me blocking on her, straight. A cove has got to think some time in life and get some decent tart. Here it's too late to be his wife. But gold, oh, would have thought it could have been my luck to strike the lights of earth, Doreen. Or I can stand there chucking off, I can. It's hard and I'd delight to take them on, the dogs. But it gets that way with a man when he's fair gone. She'll sight no stoush, and so I have to take their mag and do a duck for her sweet sake. For her sweet sake, I've gone and chucked it clean, the pubs and schools and all that leery game. For when a bloke has come to know Doreen, it ain't the same. There's higher things she says for blokes to do, and I'm half believing that it's true. Yes, higher things, that was the way she spoke. And when she looked at me, I sort of felt that booska feeling that comes off a bloke and makes him melt, makes him all out to maul her and to shove his arms about her. Blimey, but it's love. That's what it is. And when a man has grown like that, he gets a sort of yearn inside to be a little hero on his own and see the pride glow in the eyes of her he calls his queen and hear her say he's a shine champion. 
I wish you meant it, I can hear her yet, my bit of fluff. The moon was shining bright, turning the waves all yellow where it set. A bonza night. The sparkling sea all sort of golden green. And on the pier the band, oh, El, Doreen. Uh, so welcome back everybody and... Thanks for listening to the intro there again. I really appreciate it. This time I'm joined by somebody who I've been listening to for a very, very long time. Uh, and that is the great David Blakesley from uh, Criterion Cast, amongst very many different things. So welcome. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for the invitation. I, I'm really delighted to be able to join you and talk some early Australian film. Yes, uh, black and white silent cinema. <laughs> and when I put out the uh, the invitation to a few different people about talking about different films and stuff like that, um, I knew that I was going to be covering The Sentimental Bloke eventually, and I just didn't know exactly who would be the best fit. And I thought, you know what, I, I really like listening to David talk on his show and, you know, amongst various different other guest appearances and, and different shows, so I thought I'd send an invitation your way. I'm really appreciative that you uh, you said yes. Um, do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about what you what your show is and where your a bit of history about your yourself as well in, in regards to criteria and stuff? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, I'll just kind of give you the hopefully the short and efficient version. I'm a 55 year old guy living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, kind of that mitten shaped state up at the top of the U.S. map. And uh, this is where I was born. I, I lived out in California, and I've had a lot of different experiences in life. But really, in my late well, my mid 1940s, I just started really getting into cinema as kind of a, a hobby, a discipline. I raised a family. My kids were all kind of, you know, getting up and ready to move on and, and get on their life. And I was, you know, I've always been interested in movies and stuff, but I started, uh, you know, watching things that were outside of more of the commercial mainstream, uh, which, you know, as a family guy and everything, I just had kind of taken my kids to the, you know, the usual Toy Story, Disney stuff and, and had just gotten into that con- kind of conventional mindset. And I started checking out uh, DVDs from the library and just getting a little bit more adventurous. And I started noticing that, a number of these discs that had caught my attention were from this company called the Criterion Collection. And that just kind of uh, sparked this interest. I've always been a little bit of a collector and, you know, I'll, I'll find a new hobby or new thing and I'll just kind of plunge into it. And so, uh, you know, for, for several years, I was just kind of accumulating discs and watching them. And then, you know, in in pursuing my own interest, I started seeing that there were other movie bloggers out there. This was like in the you know mid 2000s and just started kind of thinking, well, you know, I like to write. I like to, uh, you know, keep a journal. Uh, and uh, so that started a, a blog called Criterion Reflections. And I guess my unique angle of being a movie blogger is that I, I made a spreadsheet that listed every Criterion release in chronological order. And so at that time, the earliest Criterion film was Nanook of the North, which I think was 1921. Mm-hmm. And I just put them all in order, and I just thought, I'm going to just work my way sort of a through film history uh, as curated by the Criterion Collection. And so in 2009, and you know, early January of 2009, I just started going at it and you know, as bloggers often do, their their pace is really prolific at the beginning. And so I was covering, you know, one, two, three, four, five films a week sometimes, just really cranking through and yeah. watching them and then sitting right down and blazing out several paragraphs of my immediate response. And then I started slowing down, started doing a little bit more research, started doing a little bit more reflection. 
and that that blog still continues um, to this day, although I'm not nearly as prolific as I once was, and and I'm doing a lot of other things. In 2010, a website called Criterion Cast kind of took notice of my blog, and I was invited to do a guest appearance on their discussion of Jean Renoir's Boudou Saved from Drowning, which was an early 1930s film, and I'd already covered it on my blog, and I think Ryan Gallagher, yeah. uh, who's still like the webmaster for Criterion Cast, you know, thought I might be a good guy to talk with over with, and I was pretty excited to do this podcast thing. I'd never done anything like that before, <laughs> but it but it kind of just caught on, you know, even though my first podcast, I had a really cheap rotten microphone and it's horrible distortion and almost unlistenable now uh but it went well and they invited me to continue collaborating i started writing a column on the site called a journey through the eclipse series which kind of looks at the more obscure films that criterion had in their catalog uh these little box sets of dvds and then that turned into or kind of grew into a podcast called the eclipse viewer where uh, a partner and I, Rob Nishimura, at the, uh, the original partner, he lived over in Japan, he and I started going through these Eclipse box sets. And, and as, a, as a Japanese man himself, he's very interested in Japanese cinema. But after a few episodes, he decided he had other priorities. He had a young daughter, and he's got an, an art career and other things going on. Mm. So that show went into a limbo for a bit. And then Trevor Barrett, who's my current uh, you know, partner with a Eclipse viewer, he kind of befriended me and encouraged me to pick it back up because I thought, you know, once Rob retired from podcasting, oh, well, it was fun. You know, we did like, you know, six, seven, eight episodes, uh, but now it's time to, you know, do other things. Uh, but in the meantime, I guess I've just become a pretty regular part of the Criterion cast crew. Uh, you know, we, we very much focus on the Criterion collection, which is the boutique label. You know, kind of the premier label here in the United States, and maybe one of the best in the world as far as great putting, you know, great definitive editions of kind of art house classics. So, all you know, Criterion's moving in some interesting new directions, and I talk about all of that quite a bit, along with, uh, well, Ryan. You know, he's he's uh, kind of retired from podcasting now, at least for a while. But me and Trevor and Aaron West, Mark Herney, uh, Scott, and I. There's a there's a a bunch of us that just kind of rotate and do different things on that site. And uh, it's also just opened up really excellent opportunities for me to guest on other podcasts such as this one here. So, uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be part of it and uh, reaching out maybe to some Australian listeners and people from around the world who are interested in your uh, kind of ongoing study and, and uh, research for uh, Australian film. Yeah, and I guess that's the key. I mean, the whole... Thank you again for for running through everything there. I really appreciate it, and everybody should listen to um, the shows that you do. And part of the reason why this show exists, the Last New Wave exists, is to um, not only try and broaden Australian viewers, uh, you know, film watchers of uh, their essential love and admiration of Australian cinema or, or understanding of Australian cinema, but also uh, part of the reason why I get international guests on is that most of the time. Um, they mostly haven't heard of of the films that I'm covering. So, you know, for example, the last film I did was Lucky Miles. Nobody had really heard of that. In fact, many people in Australia hadn't heard of it. Um, The Sentimental Bloke is a little bit different. I think if uh, people within Australia at least have their um, finger on the film pulse, they are aware of it. And odds are they've probably, um, unfortunately, the the best uh, presentation for it or the most available presentation for it is on YouTube. So it's um, 
not one that really gets uh, doled out all too often to cinemas or anything like that, which is really unfortunate. Um, but international viewers like yourself probably haven't heard of this film. So when I did ask you if you wanted to join and do it, had you heard of it before at all? or had? Oh, no, it? no. <laughs> I had not. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit about where I'm at with Australian film. Um, speaking of Trevor Barrett, he and I just did a Criterion Cast episode on Peter Weir's a 1975 film picnic at hanging rock right, right yeah. and we recorded it last weekend and and of course that film is somewhat famously set on valentine's day of 1900 mm-hmm. and so uh it was trevor's idea and of course the criterion edition has this really nice you know paperback book with the original source novel uh very nice presentation beautiful you know high def uh transfer and all of that and it's a gorgeous atmospheric film but you know in kind of our summary we we talked about, you know, I, we don't really know a lot about Australian film. And, and I mean, other than like, you know, Mad Max and Crocodile Dundee and, you know, I, I, I don't want to almost be sounding too patronizing or insulting, you know, by, you know, bringing those up. But, but that's, that's kind of the Australian export that's kind of hit the mass market up here. Um, there are others. Of course, Peter Weir's had a very successful career. But after we had finished that episode, I'm like, well, where do I go next uh, in, in learning more about Australian cinema? And, and here I am a week later talking about one of the <laughs> kind of foundational uh, works uh, of, of, that, uh, of that movement. In a way, I guess I'm going backwards in time. But in a way, if you're thinking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, I'm kind of moving forward from 1900 up to 1918, which is when this film was made. Yes. But yeah, I, I watched it on YouTube. Uh, there's uh, several different versions out there. Uh, Philip Charlier, I think, is the guy's name. That's the version that I would I would recommend. Uh, yeah, Philip Charlier, C H A R L I E R. It does have a soundtrack. It's got this little rollicking piano thing that just kind of mm-hmm. loops over and over and over throughout the whole film. So after a while, yeah, I, I recommend. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but as far as the transfer quality, and I think it's also the complete film, or at least as complete as, as there's available, there are a few shorter versions. So this one should be about an hour and 18 minutes. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's uh, you know, it is nice to have the free access to it, that's for sure, because I wouldn't know how much I'd have to pay it to get this uh, on DVD, you know, shipped from Australia or, or whatever other barriers might exist. Well, fortunately enough, I mean, there is a release, which is the Sound and Film Archive in Australia. Uh, They did a great um, kind of touch-up release about 10 years ago, thereabouts, which was the first time that I saw it. I saw it uh, at the outdoor film festival that we've got here in Perth, and uh, I saw it with the live band, and it was fantastic. I was blown away. because how much fun that would be. Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, it really was. And... You know, I, I wasn't aware of the film. I didn't know much about it. And I just fell in love with it when I first saw it. And I, I picked up the book that the the film is based on uh, with a bunch of poems. And, you know, this is... I'm Australian, of course, but the, the dialogue as shown in the uh, the, the screens and, and the shots within the film, um, they're kind of hard to read and kind of hard to understand. You have to take that moment to really read through it and a couple of times, even though they're short sentences and stuff. Yeah. Um, Almost read it out loud quietly to yourself, you know, yes. just to kind of <laughs> sound it out. But it's so, it's so uh, hilarious as you sort of decipher his uh, street slang there. I, I really love that part of the film. Yeah, so did I. And I enjoy it as a way of depicting the era perfectly because, you know, this is, as you're saying, 
you know, in regards to um, this kind of being one of the foundation films of Australian cinema. You know, one of the the crowning achievements that Australian cinema has is that we were one of the the first countries in the world, essentially, to have a feature-length film, or the first technically feature-length film came from Australia, which was uh, The Adventures of the Kelly Gang. Unfortunately, not much of it exists anymore, So, which is really sad because it would be, you know, really be something if that was the case. But it's kind of sad in a way that we, as a group of uh, filmmakers in the 1910s and 1920s, didn't have a greater reach uh, internationally because I think that, you know, particularly here with uh, Raymond Longford and Lottie Lyle, who was his uh, his wife, and uh, she is uh, plays Doreen within the film, does a great job. But um, I don't think many people are aware that she had a great impact on the Australian film industry back then as well, because she co-wrote a lot of Raymond Longford's films, and she was also the editor for his films as well. So, kind of wearing multiple hats, which is really impressive because. I think we'll start off, I guess, touching on the the story of the film because I think that her character, Doreen, is a really sweet, beautiful character in the sense that she's the one who manages to to really turn the bloke, the sentimental bloke's journey and his, his fortunes around. And I think that's really, really lovely and really sweet. Um, How do you find her? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, she's she is... a. Uh maybe not the centerpiece. I mean, the sentimental bloke, uh, Bill, he is, he is the you know, protagonist and the main character, but she's, she's the key that, that really kind of brings this winsome story to a very, uh, wonderful conclusion. I guess, you know, maybe a summary would be that this, this really is kind of an, almost like an archetypal film, a kind of this kind of gruff, uh, you know, street character, this kind of brawling slab faced fella who, you know, he gambles, he drinks, he, you know, engages in the fisticuffs and all of that mm. and he's he's just a man's man uh kind of a little bit you know uh unrefined and, and a little bit uh, awkward uh when it comes to relating to the opposite sex and all of that uh but he he becomes you know in a very positive way a, a happy domesticated uh man a family man mm. and so in a very you know, broad sense. This is a this is kind of a crowd pleaser of a movie because it it does tell a a tale that's somewhat sentimental, but it's not mawkish. It's not overbearing. It's not you know cheap or manipulative. Uh, it, it has a real feel of 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 genuine life to it, and I think that's that's actually what made it stand out for me. And I think Doreen is one of these characters who just you know she she's a you know she's a woman of her time. Uh, she she has certain expectations. Uh, she puts on airs at first, uh, then she softens up, then she has to go through the disappointment that inevitably follows when you <laughs> mix it up with a roughneck like Bill, and he's going to let you down, but uh, can she hang in there with him or not? That's kind of the the drama of it all, and, and it is a happy ending, So I think, uh, but it's a fun journey along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly simple story in the sense that it's just a man who realizes that, you know, he... He goes to prison because, uh, you know, playing two up, which uh, is quite interesting, I guess, watching this film. And I'd recently watched Wake and Fright, which also has a, a character whose downfall is um, brought upon by the game two up. Um, and it seems that, you know, obviously gambling is quite a, a major thing, um, not only in Australia, but around the world. It causes major issues. So it's it's interesting to see that that is one of the um, the 
the through lines in him trying to become a better person. Um, can, can you tell me just a little bit, what is two up? I mean, is it like a coin flipping game of some sort? Cause that seems like what they're doing in that scene yeah. where they're kind of gathered around and I, whether they match or not or something like that, uh, that determines the outcome. Okay. Yeah. And you put your money down to see which, which outcome. Okay. That's it. Yeah. So essentially it was created. If memory serves me correctly, it was created by soldiers uh, in the early 1900s thereabouts, probably small paddle of wood, two pennies on it on um one side of the penny is an x scratched into it flip it up if it gets you know that kind of thing so coin matching um it's quite a it's a very you know australian thing we enjoy you know a flitter on it i guess is the best way of putting it um so it's nice to to see that it's you know for me at least uh, it's something that we still do um so you know I enjoyed that aspect of it. <laughs> um, oh, I have to imagine there's just got to be some really wonderful culture. Uh, you know, just the, the you know old Sydney and, and the location shots are just another real treat. Even though I've never been down your way, uh, I, I always love seeing old film of cities that I've visited or lived in, or even parts of the country that I haven't visited. But I can sort of imagine what they look like today and just kind of comparing those old cityscapes mm. uh yeah there's a lot of really nice texture and, and local color throughout all of this and i think one of the things is with, with all that texture and that local color uh, because this was made sort of 1918 1919 uh and there was a sequel which came out in 1920 as well there were i think there is a shot in the film as well of, of quite a fair few soldiers coming home from the war and of course, this isn't a film that touches on World War One at all. But I imagine that obviously it's beginning of the the Great Depression and and things like that. So the the mood in Australia wouldn't have been so positive. So to have an Australian story be told and such a positive one as well, and such a joyous one that doesn't really touch on, you know, it, it touches on how to be a man and how to be a better man. And so for the, all the soldiers coming back home, it might have been a nice nice kind of uh, thing to take off their mind of the, the brutality that they already went through. Uh, I can only imagine that that, that would have uh, that would have really uh, hopefully boosted people because this was quite a successful film back then. Um, well, yeah, and, and you see these men, I mean, men from, you know, all of a certain walk of life, I guess, but you know, they're, they're gambling in the middle of the day. They're, they're not gainfully employed. They're not working. They're, they're scrapping. They're, they're, they're just finding creative ways to get by. And if they have to, you know, spend six months in the, in the lockup because of some, uh, you know, run in with the law. Well, I guess their room and board's covered for those six months and then they'll figure something else out when they get out. Yes. I mean, you, you just get the sense that Bill and, and his, uh, and his pals are, you know they're coming from hard conditions, and uh, you know being a man and and making a home and and doing the right thing and raising up a family is not sort of in the natural order of things. You're going to have to really work. You're going to have to really bust your butt and and make it happen uh, almost against the odds. Yes, definitely. And he's, you know, I think he he sees a future for himself, and and that's one of the the endearing aspects of it that has really you know we're almost 100 years after this film was made um two years shy of it so you know for it to still have a really for me at least it really has a, a great impact emotional impact is really impressive um you know because a lot of the you know the silent films of that that era are really enjoyable great films and unfortunately i don't think that modern audiences have the patience to watch something that's black and white 
or silent or has difficult language in the you know the the screens there so it's really sad that that's the case because I think there's a lot to learn from this film in for, for modern audiences and there's a lot to appreciate from it because you know Bill's journey is is quite a beautiful one he's he's just a simple guy he's in touch with his emotions he gets quite teary at certain po- moments um which is quite sweet to see especially in the the early 1900s and he realizes the error of his ways and wants a better life for himself and works hard to do it and realizes as well that to have a better life for himself he's got to have a happy wife as well as the old saying is you know um happy wife happy life i think that's right i'm probably (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) Yeah. that that works that works it gets (laughs) gets the point across yeah (laughs) Yeah. so and 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 bill's you know his his risk of slipping back into the old ways as as we see you know after they've been married for a while and he gets his first you know good paycheck and he's you know earning an honest living but you know the blokes uh, gather around and hey let's stop in and have a few and the next thing you know those <laughs> those dice are flipping and and uh, you know he's right back at it until you know and of course his motives are good he wants to bring home a little extra something and, and mm. treat the wife uh, to uh, you know a, a treat that she wasn't expecting but uh, no that's not exactly <laughs> how it goes when you get the gambling role running and he comes back broke and she's disappointed and then it looks like you know. He's just never gonna, never gonna change. He's never gonna, you know, stick with it. Yeah. And so, yeah. So there's a there's a lesson in there for us. Yeah, there is. And you know, I having a look at the different films that were made during this this period in Australia, at least, and and internationally, it's kind of interesting because in 1912 there was a ban put on bushranger films, and I think you know, reading about a bit of the history, there was there were quite a few bushranger films made and unfortunately they've been lost due to time and uh, the wear and degradation of film, natural stuff, unfortunately. So it's interesting that we then, through the, the work of Raymond Longford, who was one of the more prolific directors during that period, um, you know, we were able to make these kinds of naturalistic films, I guess, in a way, especially when, you know, internationally in Russia, you've got uh, what, Eisenstein and stuff like that, and I think they come a bit later on than this. I'm not yeah, as all, all this high it. theory and you know these kind of high concepts, which are definitely interesting if you want to engage on this kind of more intellectual level, or just the sometimes the the creative experimentation of the visual effects and multiple exposures and you know the you know like the expressionistic uh, set designs like uh, Dr. Caligari and all these crazy angles and kind of these you know, this haunted imagery uh, but but there's a certain abstraction and and remoteness to all of that this this really is a slice of life and uh i like that accessibility i mean i think this is the story that that the kind of story that i think would have been worthy of like a charlie chaplin although chaplin was a very different character than bill obviously this little tramp but but that kind of you know some pretty raucous comedy and and there's kind of a a, a coarseness uh, even a vulgarity that is I, I think actually pretty attractive because it does prevent the film from becoming you know overly saccharine and and sweet but it still ends up in a in a, a life-affirming place that it's like yeah you know we, we've kind of had our fun we've kind of you know uh 
shook things up a little bit there. I mean, I think the the, the Romeo and Juliet scenes, and yes. uh, we could pick those apart a little bit. Yeah, Bill meeting with uh, Doreen's Mar there, and you know, dress up in his suit and his you know his leather shoes, and he's just like squirming and sweating and just trying to <laughs> just trying to get through this necessary ritual so he can get onto the good stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pretty hilarious. And and she's not, you know. She's not a terrible person as well. Like she's oh. she's quite nice as she, as seen by the fact that Doreen's a lovely person. So, you know, the the fear of meeting the mother-in-law is, you know, it's something that that many married men can uh, relate to for sure. Um but I think that it's kind of yeah, it's a it's a very sweet scene because he's it's almost as if he's really uncomfortable in this this suit this kind of it's not even pristine but it's a it's a tighter fitting suit than he's usually uh than he yeah. usually wears and he's the collar up to his ears yes. and all that. <laughs> yeah it's quite amusing and it's you know it's it's a very relatable kind of intergenerational moment oh, sure. yeah which i, I love. yeah we've all had to yeah, we, we've all had to reel it in to, <laughs> to sort of stay within the boundaries of the older set you know and do what's expected of us, even though it's maybe not exactly us being a hundred percent ourselves or comfortable. But you know, you you get by and and uh, you work it out from there. Exactly. We'll touch on the <laughs> the, the Romeo and Juliet stuff as well. Oh yeah, I sure. love that scene because it's um, you know, he's he's trying to be cultured, I guess, in a way, or trying to do the right thing and take her out to a play and and see something that's kind of unfamiliar and and i love his reaction there yeah it's it's their date scene you know and so but you know it's like you almost wonder is is he thinking that these people are really doing this stuff (laughs) i feel like like he just happened to have a seat and the the, these stories are going on as if they're really happening but uh yeah his excitement when the uh romeo and and um mercurio and, and tybalt have their big sword fight yes. <laughs> and he's like get him put the boot in <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> uh, that's supposed to be a tragic scene sir you know we just sit out and <laughs> you could just sort of see him bellowing out in the middle of this uh, silent auditorium there and everybody's just kind of stared like who is this buffoon uh, but bill's just in the moment and won't be won't be denied won't be silent no exactly he's you know the, these are real people up there of course this is happening i need to be involved in this as well and cheer them on because that's oh yeah you know somebody drew a sword okay well now we're really having some action <laughs> exactly. well, well that's what he would do with his mates and i guess in the sense that you know when if there's a tiff or somebody gets into a punch-up or something like that you know they they would all stand around and cheer them on and and you know i'll give them a right hook and things like that so it's it's exciting to see him interact in, you know, in the theater in that particular way. Of course, you With know, I'm sure many cringing people... <laughs> <at> his <laughs> yes. shoulder. It's like, <laughs> I don't know this man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure that many film goers uh, watching that scene today would be like, oh, that would be date over. I would not see that person once again. Um, but, you know, she, she continues to, to see him and, and obviously uh, marriage ensues and there's kids and stuff like that. Um, I'm curious as well to see kind of, as I was mentioning, there's, there's, this is kind of a, a very unique Australian film in the sense that, you know, there were lots of great silent films uh, occurring around the world. Um, in Australia at the time, unfortunately, because it, was, it cost a lot more to actually make Australian films here um, because they didn't really make all that much money back, whereas cheaper to actually import 
uh, films from the US and uh, Europe, I guess, um, because they had already made their money back. So it was easier for them to make money in Australia, um, which is possibly why, I guess, Australian silent cinema isn't as well known because it didn't get a following internationally. Um, So in that regard, do you think that if it did get a a kind of release, I guess, in the US or Europe or anywhere, how would it have been received? I'm really, I don't know how to answer that myself, but I'm curious what you would have to say. Well, you know, I did do a little bit of reading. I think there was uh, some effort to, because this film really did do quite well in Australia. So it kind of made its money back in its domestic market. And I think it did fairly well over in the UK and maybe in other parts of Europe. But American audiences, at least according to, I think, the Wikipedia article I read, uh, American audiences had a hard time deciphering the uh, the intertitles because of the slang and sort of the phonetic way it's pronounced or spelled out. Um, and if anything, I think that's just a sort of a sad statement about uh, American audiences and their failure either to comprehend or to, you know, put a little extra effort in and, and get a slice of, uh, of life that's, you know, from a, a different part of the world, but still one that I think most American audiences at that time or even today could relate to. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you know, it's a different continent, but it's still, you know, it's a, it's an English speaking country with a lot of the same, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the structures of the homes and the yeah. cities, there, there's a certain familiarity, uh, you know the technology and the wardrobes, but it's just it's just got that unique little twist, and I think that's where you know Australian films when they do kind of make the breakthrough into you know the you know the cineplexes here in the USA, people like a little just kind of a little extra twist there, just something a little bit off the beaten path, mm. um, and I I think they did do a an Americanized version. Yes. Where the the this it was called the story of a tough guy, and they kind of toned down some of the slang a little bit. But I mean, to me, if it didn't have that that slang element, and I guess there there is kind of a literary quality to this, which I I just find wonderful. I mean, you know, Mark Twain uh, in his writings, uh, you know, the late eighteen hundreds, uh, he he also used the vernacular of his part of the world, which is, you know, the American uh, mm. Midwest and the South. And, and you, you, you really hear the characters voices coming through. And even though this is a silent film, um, I really had like this audible experience of, like I say, sort of sounding out the, the, uh, the, the titles and, and hearing that, you know, that, that Australian accent, you know, come through to the character, through the character to me. So I I felt like I had that almost full sensory experience, even though you're not actually hearing the dialogue itself, but it's very well written. It's, it's, it's poetic. I mean, there's, there's rhymes and couplets and all of that type of thing. And it, but it's also just very clever. There's a, there's a great wit about it. Um, which yeah does make me kind of curious to go seek out the the written material because I think these are pretty much quotes straight from the poem just dropped into the uh, into the, the 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 text between the scenes right yes yeah and C J Dennis's work is is quite beautiful to read it's you know it is very much the that uh, ochre Australian feel because you are when you do sound them out um, you have no you know, no other opportunity but to sound Australian because it's of the way it's written. You know, and it's exactly. <laughs> and I guess if anybody wants to learn how to do a good Australian accent, then reading C.J. Dennis's stuff is um, 
is a good way of doing it because yeah as you, as I was just saying you you have no way but just to sound Australian um it's in very they're, they're interesting reading um and it's kind of yeah. a bit sad in a way that uh, in Australia at least that maybe in the literary circles he's not as well remembered as somebody like Banjo Patterson is and Banjo Patterson is great don't get me wrong we we love Banjo Patterson but CJ Dennis is is just as good and unfortunately I think his his work has kind of fallen out of uh, out of history in a way, which is a bit sad because um, you know I, w- I would like to see modern people who appreciate poetry or modern people who appreciate uh, Australian history at least seeking out that because it's it's good stuff at least, um, which I enjoy and it's a you know I'm not a huge poetry reader but I I enjoyed reading his stuff. Is that what Dennis did mostly? Was was poetic verse then? Um, yes. Or did he do stories and? Um, even, as far uh, as I understand, I mean, I've only read his his poetry stuff. I think he might have okay. done some stories. I, I'm not too sure. Um, sure. But my the the tattered book of the sentimental bloke that I've got up on uh, my bedside table has been read a couple of times. So uh, that's yeah. that's a good thing at least, and it's a, it's an easy read because they're um, right. they stories which are written in. You know, verses and and yeah, right. There's a there's a progression there. It's it's yes, yeah. yeah. And we even get to see a, a little a cameo of the author right at the beginning of the film too. He's sitting there, yes. writing and <laughs> puffing his pipe. And I like I like the way they do the uh, the character introductions. You know, with the name of the character, the actor right underneath it, each as they kind of make their debut. There's no traditional yeah. opening credit sequence or anything like that. It's, so it's a it's a, it's you know nothing radically different, but it's it's a, its own little way of you know structuring the film i guess you could say and and uh yeah you, you just feel like yeah this is something that really came to came from the you know the the indie australian spirit <laughs> and and uh was very successful in that sense and that they really captured that that slice of life and and fortunately it was popular enough and enough editions uh were printed up that at least a few survived you know because yes. i think that's 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 the that's the real tragedy is that people didn't quite value these these films uh even even the less successful ones uh, even, just the fact that we could at least keep a print intact even if the film maybe wasn't as successful as a popular entertainment what a priceless record it was of a time that is now you know long past but yeah. wouldn't it be great to have those glimpses of 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 life in the in those eras just just the there's just for the record Oh, definitely. I agree. And this particular print, the one that's on YouTube and the one that was made up for the, the Sound and Film Archive in Australia, their DVD, um, it was kind of cobbled together from a few different prints. Unfortunately, for the longest period of time, there was only about 20 minutes of the film from memory found in Australia that it existed in Australia. And so unfortunately, it seemed as if most of the film was lost. And then it wasn't until... I think the 1990s um, or maybe early 2000s even uh, that the rest of the film was found in the USA of all places Um, because of course that's where random films are always found in not the country that they originated in Um, and yeah so essentially it was exported back to Australia and they've restored it from there and it's really lucky that we we have that because you know this is a complete film it's a fantastic film and otherwise it would have just been lost to time and that's one of the heartbreaking things you know is that unfortunately when new uh, art forms and new things start they may not be um 
preserved as best as possible. And and unfortunately, they they maybe just didn't know how uh, impactful film would be to uh, world culture and the world, um, which is really sad because I would I would love to have seen some of those early films. Um, but one last question I've got, and then we'll wrap up. Is is there a particular film that's, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a silent film, that's like a sentimental bloke that you might recommend? Um, you know, it, it could be black and white, could be silent, it doesn't have to be. Well, I don't know. I mean, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid kind of comes to mind. It's, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, a roughneck character. Again, Chaplin and, and, and uh, Bill are <laughs> two different types of men, but but they're still you know, on the wrong side of the tracks. Who you know sort of end up. Ta- I mean, in, in the in the kid, you know, Charlie Chaplin is sort of taken on this foundling. He really doesn't want to have to be bothered with this, but you know, he 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 becomes in his own way a bit of a a de- domesticated gent. Uh, here, you know, Bill is you know a guy who seems fairly content to be you know, roused about, you know, and and having the occasional scrapes with the law and hanging out with his mates and all that but then uh something happens uh you know love in- interrupts <laughs> his his routine <laughs> and so yeah and i think because they both are sort of you know films set in the city that kind of you know take off in an, their own direction and and really deliver a very uh happy ending that that affirms some of those basic things of life you know of of uh, committed relationships, of bringing up the younger generation, mm. and, uh, and even smoothing off our own rough edges for the sake of uh, peace and tranquility. You know, I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong; I'm not a total sap. I, I enjoy <laughs> movies that are a little bit on the rowdier side, and and sometimes, uh, you know, all those domesticated trappings can become a bit stifling. And and uh, there's plenty of film out there that kind of shows that other side. But uh, deep down, you know, I, I think there is kind of a, a a wholesome goodness to a film like this. And mm. and uh, yeah, so I, I I guess those are you know a couple that that come to mind as you know the kid and and some of those early, other early Chaplin uh, shorts, you know, where, uh, you know, he, he's definitely a character, you know, who could be a little bit shady at times, but he's got that proverbial heart of gold, mm-hmm. and uh, as does this uh, sentimental bloke. And I guess I, 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 the name of the actor eludes me at the moment. Arthur, I think, is his name, something. But but the guy who plays Bill, I think, is a really wonderful bit of casting. Yeah. He he was a, a vaudevillian. He had just done a couple short, you know, films apparently before this one. But he really pulls it off like a star. I mean, I you know you you really you know wonder. Yeah, uh, you know, he he had a talent there. He had an expressiveness uh, to his face, his physique, and uh, you know he he was not just called on to be one type of character. I mean, he went through some real uh, growth in in this uh, in this hour plus of, of uh, character study, and uh, I I think he did a very commendable job. So. Uh, yeah. He's got his own little bit of cinematic immortality, if nothing else, to show for it. Oh, definitely, I agree. And you know, going alongside Lottie Lyle as well, who, uh, echoing what I said before, I think she's fantastic here, and she was kind of Australia's first film star in a way. Um, and they're uh, Mary Pickford or something like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And but the fact that she was doing that technical stuff behind the scenes, she wasn't just a pretty face up there. She was. Uh, mm. A real creative uh, contributor there, like you say, the editing, the writing, the you know, the the story development, all of that. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, she oh, obviously great. had a a creative drive to her. That uh, it's nice that she had this moment, and that and that her work has been preserved yeah. in, in this landmark film. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's just really sad that, uh, unfortunately, she died at 35 years of age. So 1925, I think it was, uh, she died from tuberculosis. And after that, right. Raymond Longford really didn't work all too much after that, which is kind of sad because his work here, at least, is just fantastic. And, you know, I will be covering uh, more films from this era uh, in future episodes, but... I think, you know, for me at least, I really hope that people do seek out the films from this era and the 1920s and 1930s um, and Chevelle's stuff as well. Uh, they're just fantastic films and they certainly do give you a lot of uh, the Australian bite, I guess is the way of putting it, um, and the Australian character from that era. And it's, I, I don't, I, can't, I personally can't see a through line in the fact that there's. Um, you know, resonating elements of the sentimental bloke in modern Australian cinema, but that doesn't matter because it's enjoyable at least. And from that, yeah, I highly recommend seeking it out at least. And it's on YouTube. Um, I'll put the the link to the one that that David recommended earlier in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add about the sentimental bloke before we wrap up? No, Andrew, I, I do appreciate the invitation to do this again. And uh, just, you know, kind of giving me some, uh, some, some tantalizing uh, leads to follow. I will be listening along and deepening my knowledge of Australian uh, cinema, especially the early years uh, as you lead us through that. So uh, thanks for letting me be a part of this today. No worries. Thank you very much. And everybody, I'll put links to uh, all the work that, well, not all of it, but uh, most of the work that David's done um, in the show notes as well. I highly recommend if you haven't already listened to um, the Clips Viewer and Criterion Cast, um, then I highly recommend seeking it out. Once again, thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. I really hope that you enjoyed uh, our discussion on The Sentimental Bloke. And, you know, yes, it is a silent film. Yes, it's black and white. But I hope that you actually go out and seek it out on YouTube. I'll put the links in the show note because it is actually a really impressive film. And it stands up perfectly to today's time. A really, really wonderful film that, that showcases an era of Australian cinema that unfortunately is regularly forgotten. Make sure as well to head over and, and listen to the episodes of uh, Criterion Cast and Eclipse Viewer that David Blakesley does. Uh, he's a really fantastic guy, and, and honestly, if there's somebody who helped inspire me to start doing podcasting, it's him. Uh, he's a fantastic man and really enjoy having listened to his work throughout the years. So uh, thanks again, David, for joining me to discuss this film. In that regard, make sure to also head over to our website, which is abfilmreview.com, and follow us on social media on Facebook at The Last New Wave. I'd be remiss as well if I didn't thank Leanne Drew for the great readings of C.J. Lewis's poems there. And what better way to finish off the episode by another reading of a, a beautiful segment of The Sentimental Bloke. So, what better way to wrap up the episode? We'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave. The Moocher Life This evening I was sitting with Doreen Peaceful and happy with the day's work done Watching, behind the orchard's bonza green The flaming wonder of the setting sun 
Another day gone by, another night, creeping along to douse day's golden light. Another dawning when the night is gone, to live and love, and so life mooches on. Times I have thought when things was going crook, when hope turned dark and love forgot to smile, of something I once seen in some old book, where an old sorehead asked, is life worthwhile? But in that stillness as the day grows dim, and I'm sitting there with her and him, my wife, my son, and strength in me to strive, I only know it's good to be alive. You live, you love, you learn, and when you come to square the ledger in some thoughtful hour, the everlasting answer to the sum must alas be, where's sense in getting sour? For when you've come to weigh the good and bad, the gladness with the sadness you have had, then I moves faith in whom and goodness fails, forgets to put his liver in the scales. Living and loving, learning day be day, pausing a minute in the balmy strife to find that helping others on the way is gold coined for your profit, such is life. I've studied books with yearnings to improve, to eave myself out of me lowly groove. And here is all the change I ever got. Ark at your art and you can learn the lot. It gives it in, that wisdom of the mind. I wasn't built to play no lofty part. All such welcome to the joys they find. I only know the wisdom of the heart. And ever it has taught me day by day the one same lesson in the same old way. Look for your profits in the arts of friends, for Aiton never paid no dividends. Life's what you make it, and the bloke who tries to grab the shining stars from out the skies goes crook on life and calls the world a cheat and tramples on the daisies at his feet. But when the moon comes creeping o'er the hill, and when the mopoke calls along the creek, I takes me cup of joy and drinks me fill, and ask myself what better could I seek. In every song I hear the thrushes sing, that everlasting message seems to bring. And every wind that whispers in the trees gives me the tip there ain't no joys like these. Living and loving, wandering on your way, reaping the harvest of a kind deed done and watching in the sundown of your day, yourself again, grown nobbler in your sun, knowing that every coin of kindness spent bears interest in your art at cent per cent, measuring wisdom by the peace it brings to simple minds that value simple things. And when I take a look along the way that I have trod, it seems the man knows best, who's met with slabs of sorrow in his day, when he is truly rich and truly blessed. And I am rich because my eyes have seen the love light in the eyes of my Doreen. And I am blessed because me feet have trod a land whose fields reflect the smile of God. Living and loving, learning to forgive the deeds and words of some unhappy bloke who's missed the bus. So have I come to live and take the old mad world as half a joke? Sitting that evening in this sunset sun, with her in the world to hold me, 
and a son to bear me name when I am gone, living and loving, so life mooches on. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now with Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products. Like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details.